I grew up in the church. I uh, was a little girl who choreographed new dance moves for Father Abraham and wore my Awana cubby, uh, cubby's vest to bed with me. Uh, I love the Lord uh, so much just from an early age. And I have parents who uh, were, were amazing to get me involved in the church. Um, they were broken. My dad was quite emotionally withdrawn and detached and just didn't really know how to kind of celebrate me as a little girl. And my, my mom was working through a lot of her own issues. And so we, uh, we were a little bit broken, but, but I was in the church, and I, I loved Jesus. I homeschooled all the way until my freshman year in high school. Uh, so I just had that kind of innocent upbringing. However, when I was five years old, I was sexually abused by some of my older brother's friends. I have two older brothers, and uh, that was devastating. Uh, that was devastating for me. It, it sent me the message that I wasn't valuable. I wasn't worth protecting. I wasn't worth fighting for. And I decided at that point that if no one else was going to fight for me, I was going to protect myself. And I was going to do whatever it took to make sure that I was not ever hurt by a man again. And so I became pretty tough, pretty athletic, uh, invested highly in, in, in basketball and kind of more masculine things. I wanted to be just like my brothers. Um, I essentially wanted to be like a man. Uh, I thought maybe that might protect me against uh, being in, invaded, against intruded. Um, but I, I love the Lord as well, and and I continued to, to pursue uh, the things of him. I, I memorized the entire book of Philippians when I was in seventh grade just because uh, I was so drawn to him and I wanted to know him. Right before my freshman year in high school, my family moved to a suburb of North Dallas, and I started a public school with over 2,000 students. And I was on uh, varsity basketball my freshman year, really popular. And I had an assistant principal who, who was really drawn to me. And she began to pursue a relationship with me and would have me come by her office every day after school and just engage with me. And I, I soaked it up. I loved the attention and the affirmation. And her words carried a lot of weight in my life. And she highly suggested to me that she believed I was a lesbian. And then I must embrace my homosexual identity and, and pursue that as a path for my life. I was really confused. I had all this, this upbringing of, of, not upbringing, but I had this, this confusion obviously come from my abuse as a kid. And, and as she kind of taught me these things, it made sense. And, and I didn't really have a place to work through them outside of her office because I didn't think that youth group would be able to hear these kinds of struggles. And so I, I embraced that as an identity, and I uh, pursued that lifestyle. Um, it was very destructive, a lot of promiscuity, a lot of addictions, and it quickly destroyed me. I became bitter. I became anger. I, I lost my intimacy with Jesus, and it was very, very hopeless. Um, when I was 16, I came out to my mom, and I told her, hey, this is who I am. Uh, you know, uh, deal with it. And, and luckily, she freaked out, and she dragged me to go see Ricky Shillette at Living Hope, and I met with him every week, and I cussed him out, and I told him he was, I thought he was full of, of you know, junk. Uh, <laughs> and uh, praise God, he loved me unconditionally, and he was convinced that, that Jesus um, had something better for my life, and just like my principal had invested in me and led me down the, the path to homosexuality, he invested in me and led me towards Jesus. 
and convinced me that if I would set kind of these issues of sexuality aside and pursue Christ for a little bit, uh, that he might transform my life. And so I did that. Um, here's the deal. This journey since I started has been extremely messy. Uh, I've fallen unbelievable amount of to- amounts of times. I ended up actually being raped by a youth pastor uh, later on. I've, I've, it's been a messy, messy journey. But here's the thing. I have run to Jesus because the Bible doesn't celebrate us getting our lives together and then going to him. The Bible asks that we run to him as we are, messy with all of our junk, and says he will bring the transformation. He will bring the change. And that's what he's done in my life. So as I've continued to struggle and I've continued to stumble and fall, I've run to him and found that he will take the broken, shattered pieces of my life and he will display his beauty through it. That's the kind of transformation that's taken place in my heart. That's what change that takes place moment by moment in my life, and that can only be explained by Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Well, good afternoon, I guess now. Um, good to be here this morning, and uh, glad to be with you. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, Julie is an amazing young lady, and I wish that you could hear her whole story. Um, it would take a, a, a while to go through all the ugliness of all of her life and all the ways in which God has worked to redeem her. But I'm telling you that the beautiful young girl that you see standing before you right now is not the little girl that came to visit me that first time in that counseling session. Uh, she had on a pair of jeans, a big a flannel shirt, a, a big heavy jacket, a backwards cap, and looked at me with folded arms and folded legs like, go ahead and try to touch me, buddy. I'm going to kill you. And uh, there was a couple of times I actually thought she might. But um, she never did, and she stuck with it, and, and we've stuck together, and we've been walking this out now since she was 16 years old, and she's 22 and, uh, and God has done amazing, unbelievable, incredible things in her life. And I wish that I could say that it was, it was all me. You know, it was my great counseling skills, my great ability to help her. But the truth of the matter is that's just a lie. Uh, what it was is that the gospel is transformational. And that when you come into an encounter with the gospel of Christ and you really embrace it and allow it to penetrate your heart, it will transform and change you in unbelievable kinds of ways. And it's nothing new. It's been happening for a very, very, very long time. You remember Paul, don't you, the guy in the New Testament that wrote most of it? Well, that guy, Paul, understood the power of the transformation of the gospel in his life. For you see, Paul was that guy in Acts 7 who was there when they began to stone Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He saw them killing Stephen and stoning Stephen. As a matter of fact, the Bible even tells us that after Stephen was dead, they gathered his clothes and they presented them to Paul, whose name then was Saul. And Paul did nothing. The Bible tells us that Paul was the one who persecuted the Christians and and often would look to find ways to kill them because he didn't want the spread of the gospel to take place. He didn't like what was happening. He's also the one in Acts chapter 9 that we read about that on the road to Damascus has this experience with Christ and he's blinded by a light and he's sent to this place called Straight Street. I love that. You know, if you get your life messed up, go to Straight Street and you can get it straightened again. You know, and sure enough, that's where he was and that's where God met with him and and communed with him. And suddenly Jesus appeared to him and said to him, Paul, why do you continue to persecute me and my church? And Paul had an encounter with Jesus and he came away from that. Scales fell from his eyes. He could see again. And when he did, he said, I must follow Christ. And so he followed Christ. He began to preach in the synagogues and people were freaked out by what he was doing because this very Paul was the same Paul who had been going after and killing the Christians. Now he was preaching 
freedom to them and transformation to them. And it was scary for them. You see, the problem that Julie had and the problem that we have are really the same problem. The problem she had was not a problem of homosexuality at all. The problem that she had was a problem with sin. And sin had begun to take over her heart and her life. And what happens when sin comes into our lives is that it clouds the the, the perception that we have of who God is and it clouds our ability to hear God's delight in us. And it changes us. It causes us to feel distant and detached and alone. And the more we feel that way, the further we walk away trying to fill our lives with other things that we think are going to help us but only make the hole in our heart even deeper. Well, Paul understood the transforming power of the gospel. And he spoke of it specifically, and he spoke of our sin specifically, in um, the letter to the church in Corinth. So if you have your Bibles, open it to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at uh, chapter 6, verse 9 and following. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And here is what he says. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, for most places, if we were in the Deep South, and by the way, y'all do know that Texas really isn't the Deep South, right? I'm originally from New Orleans. That's the deep, deep South. Like, you can't get any deeper, you fall off the world. But, um, but that's the Deep South. You know, Texas is kind of transitional. You're kind of, you know, Southwestern sort of. But nonetheless, if you were in the Deep, Deep, Deep South, and you were in a little backwoods church somewhere, and there was a preacher that was preaching there, he would love to stop at this verse right here, and he would go to town preaching. Why? Because there's some good preaching material in there. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about all kinds of sin. And the best part about it is, as we talk about all that sin, everybody in the congregation is going to be happy. You know why? Because when we read it, we don't think we're in that passage. We think we're not any of those things. We're not swindlers. We're not adulterers. We're not drunkards. We're Baptists. Um, we're, you know, I mean, we, we, don't, we don't do any of those kinds of things, right? That's what we think. Well, let me just unpack this a little bit for you. Because I think we've been a little bit maybe deceived. You see what it starts off with there? He says, what about the sexually immoral? Now, I, I know most of you are thinking, well, I'm not very sexually immoral. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a good person. I'm married or, or I'm single and I've been chased and I'm, I'm doing the right things. Well, that may be true, but, but what about that porn addiction that you seem to have? You say, now, wait a minute, preacher. Don't, don't get to meddling. Um, you know, we don't have a porn problem. Well, really, well, the guys who attended the Promise Keepers this last time when they attended the Promise Keepers, they did a survey of them. And it said that 80% of those guys, and you know who those guys are? Promise keeper guys are the guys like that are deacons, and they love Jesus, and they're doing devotionals at their home with their family, singing Kumbaya. I mean, those are the, those are the promise keeper guys, okay? 80% of the men who had attended promise keepers had viewed pornography the week prior. And the other 20% were probably lying about it, okay? Well, maybe not. Maybe they really weren't seeing it. But the truth of the matter is we are so inundated with the availability of pornography today that it is almost impossible for anyone to exist in our culture without seeing it either willingly and wantingly or unwillingly because it just pops up on something that you have. It's scary. When I was a little guy and cell phones were big things that were in cars that were only for really, really rich people, you couldn't get pornography on the cell phone. But now little kids that are now getting their cell phones when they're 11 and 12 can now access pornography readily 
without filters, without mom and dad knowing about it. They can send each other pictures that are pornographic of themselves and of others. That never used to be true. But it is now, and it's creeping into our world, and it's taking us over. So maybe the idea of immorality and sexual immorality particularly is a little broader than we think. Or what about you if you subscribe to those premium channels? You know, that Skinamax, I mean Cinemax channel? What about that? I mean, it's not pornography really now, is it? But, but there's enough there for me to see a lot of things and imagine things in my heart and in my mind that I shouldn't. Now, women, you're not absolved from this either. It seems as though many of you are growing quite, uh, growing quite friendly with those really steamy romance novels um, or those soap operas during the day that you TiVo and watch when you come home at night. Uh, what is it so titillating about that that you can't seem to pull yourself away from it? So maybe we are a little more sexually immoral than we think. But then there's idolaters. And, and I mean, we're all Christ followers, right? And so we don't worship at a cow and we don't bow the knee to the idol. And we, we, we don't do those things, right? I mean, that's not who we are as Christians. Well, how about those Mavs? And how about those cowboys? How about that favorite college team that you have that you follow all the time? I mean, I live in Arlington, and my office is on the second floor of an office building, and I can look out and see the, the monster stadium that we're building for a billion dollars to play football in. I don't know of too many billion-dollar cathedrals to Jesus. I think we do have maybe some idols that are in our lives. Or, or what about the... Um, what about that YSL bag lady or the, or, or, or the Gucci shoes that you absolutely have to have or the boat or the car? Or what about America's obsession with food? Do you realize that in America almost everybody is somewhere between 10 and 20 pounds overweight? Everybody is between 10. I know you're all looking going, oh, it's more than 10. Okay, so, uh, more, you know, but what is it about the food thing? Why is it that all of us are constantly struggling with this food? I'm convinced, y'all, I'm convinced that the reason we are all so overweight is not because we just have an abundance of food and lots of money to spend on it. I believe it's because so many of us are dealing with so many issues in our life that are painful that food becomes a wonderful way to take the pain of our life, put it into our mouth, and shove it deep down so that we don't have to deal with the pain. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, no, I just really like food, you know. I mean, that double cheeseburger is just good, you know. But I'm telling you, there's something else going on. And don't tell me that's not become an idol because look how you design your life around food. Some of you right now are already thinking about what you're going to eat when you leave here. And you can't wait to get to where you're going, okay? It, it becomes an idol in our life. But, but you know, maybe, maybe you think not. What about adulterer? Well, I'm not unfaithful to my wife. I mean, I love my wife. I'm faithful. I, I haven't done anything but... But what about the physical other kinds of infidelity that you might participate in, the fantasy that you entertain when you look at pornography? Or what about the emotional affairs that you have at work that you never let go physical, uh, you never let them get to physical stuff, but emotionally you're, you're drawn by this person and you're connecting to this person. Mentally you're playing those games in your head. Jesus says that if you look upon a person with lust in your heart, it is as though you have committed adultery. But then there are thieves. Now, we're not thieves. 
I mean, you know, because we're good people. I mean, we love we love the Lord, and we pass the offering just down the pew, and we don't we don't think nobody's going to reach their hand and grab any money out of it. I mean, they wouldn't do that, right? We're not thieves at all. But the Bible says that if you're not thieves, then it's perfectly okay for Ron to open up the books for me, and I'm going to check all of your records to make sure that all of you are good tithers. Because the Bible says that if you'll not give God what he's due, you're a thief. You're robbing him. Now, I can say that because I'm here one Sunday and I'm gone. You know, um, you know maybe, maybe Ron can't say that, but I'll say it for him, but it's true. You're robbing God. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe in fact we are thieves. Or what about greedy? Now, you say, well, no, 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 I'm generous. I mean, America is the most generous nation in the world. We give more away than any other nation combined even. I mean, surely, surely we're not greedy. But I guarantee you that many of us that boast about how much we give oftentimes boast about our giving to cover up what it is that we're withholding so that you don't really see it all. I often think that all we need is one of those, one of those uh, instances like Ananias and Sapphira in the Bible where they came to give their offerings and they didn't give all they were supposed to and because they didn't give all of they were supposed to and they lied about it, they dropped dead. I thought, you know, you do that one time, Ron, we'd never have a problem with the giving in the church. I mean, it would just, everybody would be bringing in the storehouse giving. You know, it would happen just like that. But have you seen us at a potluck or a dinner on the ground or a picnic for church? We're greedy. Like there'll be a whole line, a whole uh, big long table full of desserts. And while we're way in the back of the line, we're eyeing which piece is the biggest. And we're going for it. We're not going to leave it there for anybody else. And it's not because we're hungry. But it's because there's something in our hearts that are just greedy. Because we're sinners. Now, I could go on and on and on, but I think you're getting the point that this verse is really about us. And if it is about us, look what it says. It says, and such will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if I've convinced you that this verse talks about you in some form or fashion, the Bible says here that if those things are true for you, then you're not going to heaven. That's pretty bad news. But here's the good news, and it's in verse 11, and we seem to forget about it. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. In other words, what Paul is saying is that in the first century church in Corinth, there were people who were swindlers and liars and thieves and adulterers and greedy and homosexuals, and they were that way, but look what it says The power of God, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. People had an encounter with Jesus, and when they did, their lives were transformed. You were washed. It literally means that that you've been baptized because of your confession of faith. It says you've been sanctified. Sanctified means to set apart and to be made holy, to be made righteous. It says in and of itself that you didn't do anything. You were put that way because of what Jesus did for you. And then it says you've been justified. Justified is a legal term. It's a term that, that is used to say that you have been made innocent of that which you were really guilty. And we didn't do anything about it. Do you realize that even our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags before God? There is nothing that you nor I can do to convince God that we're good enough. All of the Old Testament lives as a testimony to show that. It's the reason Jesus came. It's the reason we need a Savior. And glory to God that that Paul points out here that because of what Jesus has done, we can approach the Father boldly, that He has covered us. He has covered us. And because of that, we can, in fact, be changed. 
and transformed and renewed. Now, I've had the privilege of talking to thousands and thousands of people who struggle with homosexuality. And in the process of talking with them, I've learned some things over the past 10 or 11 years about why people struggle. And it has a lot to do, in some cases, with this transformational process that needs to take place in all of our lives. And I wish that I could explain to you all that there is involved in homosexuality, but as you might imagine, with anything that is human, it's very complicated and very complex. And so I certainly couldn't do it in a 20-minute message on a Sunday morning. And so if you're interested at all in understanding about why people struggle and, and how they change and what you can do as a Christ follower to embrace them and love them and encourage them, I would encourage you to, when the service is over, go right out of the door and grab one of the brochures. We're having a conference, a one-day conference from 9 to 4.30 at Carroll Baptist Church in South Lake. Uh, it costs 25 bucks, includes lunch. You can't get it much cheaper than that. And uh, we have just a ton of information there. There will be seven or so presenters and there's breakout sessions and main sessions and all this kind of stuff that you can go to. You can sign up on the table for uh, the newsletter, which is free. We've got some newsletters out there. You can have lots of information, brochures, things like that that are all free. We've also got some tapes and, and lectures that I've done and other people have done about understanding homosexuality. That's my shameless plug. If you want to get it, if you don't, that's fine. Um, but it's there and the information is there. But one of the things I've noticed is that everybody who struggles with any kind of sexual brokenness has basically three things that they're looking for. They're really looking for affirmation, attention, and affection. I call those the three A's so you can remember. Affirmation, attention, and affection. Well, what do they mean? Affirmation means that I'm good enough, strong enough, capable enough, I have what it takes to be a man or I have what it takes to be a woman. And a person needs to get these three A's not only from their mom, which generally happens pretty naturally. Most women connect to their kids pretty well. But more importantly and more pointedly, it needs to come from their father. Because, you see, God has created the father to be a significant person in the home, so much so that in Genesis 2.19, when God creates all the animals of the earth, he brings man to see those animals, and he says to the animals, Adam, whatever you name them, they will be named, and whatever you call them, they'll be called. So man is given this unbelievable voice to speak truth into chaos and to give form. That really is the definition of masculinity, as far as I'm concerned, from a biblical perspective. It's not about how big your muscles are or how big your bank accounts are or how many boats you have or how nice your house is. It's whether or not you as a man can stand up, speak truth into the chaos of life and bring form and order into that chaos. And in doing so, you reflect the glory of God because you're created in his image. That's a powerful thing, a powerful responsibility that a man has and a woman doesn't have it. Now, don't, don't come and write me letters. I love women. They have unbelievable things that they do, and they have responsibilities that we cannot do. Women connect and relate, and your highest satisfaction will come in your ability to network and connect in meaningful, deep relationships with other people. Men don't do that. We just don't. We're not wired that way, but you are. And that's good, and that's different, and it's wonderful, but it is different, Okay? And, and both are equally important, but that's just the way it works out. That's the way God has designed it. And so we need this affirmation from our Father, the, the idea that I'm good enough, strong enough, capable enough, I am a gender person, and it's, it's, it's okay. And then we need affection. Now, affection is what you think it is. It's physical touch. I tell dads of preschoolers all the time, you can't love on, hug on, kiss on, cuddle with, snuggle with your kid too much. You can't. Okay? Now, the sad part about that is sometimes in our culture, Men believe that to do that turns their little boys into sissies or makes them weird or something like that. What I'm telling you is if you don't do that enough, it may in fact 
the bad results may in fact happen. Because if you don't get that kind of affection that you need as a man from other men or from, as a girl from your dad, if you don't get that affection, you'll go looking for it in other places. Have you seen guys play sports? How many of you guys played on a sports team? Raise your hand. Remember how much you keep touching each other? I mean, seriously. Watch guys. No, he says, I never did it. I never touched anybody. I promise you. No, we do. We touch each other. I mean, we hug in, we huddle in, we're patting each other on the rompus. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing all kinds of things that are physical in nature. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to be ashamed of in that. The fact of the matter is we need physical touch from other men. That's part of how we're made. We're built that way. And so if you're not doing that with your little boys, there's going to be trouble. And especially if you have what, what I call in a personality style of a child a sensitive little boy. Basically, when little boys are born, they have one of two personalities. They're either very sensitive or they're very rough and tumble. That's their primary mode of operation. And so if you have a little sensitive boy, he really needs to be parented completely different than that rough and tumble boy. And it particularly shows up in the third A, which is attention. You have affirmation, you have affection, and you have attention. Attention is the ability of the dad to focus in on the child and to listen and to hear and to understand his heart without the distractions all around him. And so for the sensitive boy, attention means presence. It means that in order for me to really hear you, you have to stop everything that's going on, look me straight in the eyes, and speak deeply into my soul. He's the Starbucks kid. He's the kid that loves to sit at the table, or the round table at Starbucks with his friend right across the way and talk about the deep meaning of life philosophically, what is going on and stirring in his heart. He's typically also the guy who's very emotive and sensitive and, and artistic and expressive. The rough and tumble guy, on the other hand, gets attention by proximity. In other words, if dad says, hey, let's go watch the ball game with, with your cousins and your brother, he's like, cool, dad's giving me attention, let's go. And so he's all over that. And he feels like dad's giving him attention, even though the truth of the matter is dad is really not just focused in on him. Now, the problem comes when that rough and tumble dad has a sensitive boy and he tries to relate to him and he feels very uncomfortable. Let's be honest. Most of you men in this room, if I took you to play golf, in a matter of a few hours, you would tell me everything about your life. You would just open up and you would share as long as I never looked you in the eye. But if I looked you in the eye, you would be absolutely frightened. And you know it's true because you won't look your wife in the eye. And she's constantly telling you, would you look at me? Look at me and listen to what I'm saying. Okay? Men don't generally do that well. We want to do things shoulder to shoulder, have some other activity to distract us, so that ultimately we can communicate with one another. That's how we function. Little sensitive boys want daddy to look him in the eye and speak deeply into their soul. And so when you see this recurring thing happening over and over again, this lack of these three A's, you realize that something is going on and the church has failed to adequately address this issue in the church. We haven't talked effectively about sexuality or homosexuality particularly. And only change will happen when that journey of transformation begins with an honest confrontation with the truth. And the truth is not something. The truth is someone. And the truth is really Jesus. Don't you see that, that the whole reason that we struggle with sin and the whole reason that we have this huge need for these three A's is all designed by God so that we realize how incredibly helpless and hopeless we are to make it in this life without Him. He has designed us in such a way that we are needy. 
And we need the love of Jesus and the grace of God to be a part of our life. There is nothing that we can do that is going to make us good enough for the holiness and the righteousness and the sovereignty of our Father, except to plead the blood of Jesus and what he's done for us. And that's what God asks of each of us, that we would have that encounter with him that would transform our lives. It reminds me of a little boy who was born to two 16-year-olds. Um, neither of them were, were married to each other at the time. Uh, the little boy was conceived out of wedlock in the backseat of, of an old car. But they wanted to do the right thing, and so they decided to go ahead and get married. Uh, but he were only 16, neither graduated from high school. And so dad went off and signed up to be a construction worker, and he ended up getting shipped offshore quite a bit. And so the little boy grew up in the home with the mom, but the dad was gone most of the time. And he was one of those little sensitive boys, one of those boys who, who was very artistic and expressive and he was very bright and he spent lots of time reading and studying and listening to musicals with his mom and learning all the words and singing and dancing and performing for people when they showed up at his house. But his relationship with dad was, was pretty weak. He didn't have a grandfather from his mother or his father's side because, as I said, both of them didn't really have a relationship with their dads. Neither one of them knew how to be a real good father or a mother. But during his young, his young childhood, the grandmother on the dad's side decided to get married for the third time. And when she married, she married this wonderful construction house builder guy that came into the family. And all of a sudden, this little boy had for the first time in his life a granddad. And he was so excited. And this granddad took all kind of interest in him and gave him lots of affirmation, attention, and affection. And he thought, wow, this is the neatest thing in the world. This man loves me. He cares for me. He wants to be involved in my life. But what we didn't know, what the family didn't know, is that this granddad was also a pedophile. A pedophile. And so at about five years old, this granddad began to abuse this young boy. And matter of fact, he did it many times a week, every week. And the mom and the dad had both been abused as children themselves, but never talked about it and never shared it with the son or with anybody else. And their biggest fear in all of their life was that their kid would be abused. And so no babysitter ever babysat the kids except grandma and granddad. And so for 10 years, weekly, this little boy got abused until he was 15 years old and decided that, you know what, I can't do this anymore and normal people don't have this kind of relationship with their grandfather, and so he stopped it. But needless to say, he was very, very confused about his own sexuality. He couldn't understand why he couldn't relate to other men, and, and every time he would get around men that would in any way connect to him, he'd feel these sexual urges because that was the only way he had ever related to men before, and he was very confused. So what did he do? He, he poured himself into his schoolwork and into academics, and by the time he was a senior in high school, he was president of his class. He was top of the class graduating. He was giving the commencement address. He was very popular. Everybody in the city knew him. Everybody in the school knew him. But inside, he was crying and dying because of what had taken place in his life. The one thing he wanted more than anything was a family, and he didn't have one. He wasn't connected to anybody. So at 18 years old, living this almost incredibly, immaculately clean life with the exception of this really dark secret, he decided that he would take an overdose of drugs to try to kill himself. And so he did. But he didn't succeed, and he was found that night, and they brought him to and pumped his stomach out and brought him to the hospital. And the long story short of it is in the process of all that, he had gotten to know a family in a church, in a Baptist church, that began to show him the love of Jesus in a way that he had never seen before. He, had, he wasn't brought up in the church. He didn't know much about God. But he saw in this family something that was very different. 
And he finally got to the place of realizing that if I'm going to make it, I'm going to have to have this Jesus that they talk about. And so one night, all alone in his room, he knelt down and he said to God, I don't know if you're real and I don't know if you're even there, but if you are, would you come into my life and do something with me? Because I can't. And in that moment that he knelt down, Jesus came into his life and began to transform his heart and to change his life. Now, when that little boy stood up, he still had the same dad and he still had the same granddad. He still had the 10 years of abuse. He still wasn't connected to his family. But somehow, when he stood up from that kneeling position and Jesus was in his heart, he now heard the voice for the first time of a loving Heavenly Father who said, I am singing in delight over you. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I will be a father to the fatherless. And he had hope. And the gospel transformed his life. Now, how do I know that's true? Well, because I am that little boy. And for 25 years, I've been in ministry, and I shouldn't be where I am today. I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have uh, the opportunities that I have today, but I do because the power of the gospel came into my life and transformed me. And I'm here to tell you that the greatest testimony that I have of all is that I have lived my life in such a way that everything about who I am today is testimony to the glory and the grace and the goodness of God and not to me. Because I am a wretched, miserable, this far away every day sinner. I constantly, every morning, wake up and say, God, if it's not surrender to you, I am doomed. I am absolutely doomed. And I'm here to tell you, folks, that God didn't do that for me and not be willing to do that for you. God says the power of the gospel can transform your life. You hear that list of sinners? Maybe that's what some of you have participated in. But the great news and the great hope and the good news of the transformational power of the gospel is this. That that is what some of you were. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that your, your power transforms us and changes us. That, Father, you're able to make of our lives something that we couldn't even have imagined. That your word promises that you will do far and abundantly more than we can even hope or imagine in each of us. And we are so grateful that you do that. Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that, that needs the power of the gospel in their life, that they would surrender to you, that they would come just as they are and and say, Lord, I don't know if you're there, I don't know if you're real, but if you are, do in me what only you can do. If there's someone here who's broken and hurt and they've wandered far away from you in their own sin, I pray that this morning you would give them the power to say, I can give this to the Lord and he can make me whole. He can cleanse my heart and my soul. Father, do in and through us what only you can do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.